Hi, Tozin. Hello, you look very smart. I, uh, but he's a prince. What do you expect? <laughs> oh, well. This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. <laughs> I'm a man who really believes that Ethiopia is the country of the Abrahamitic faiths. And this is what we could give the world. We are black, but we are also human beings. And we see each other as being a country that is where humanity started. to Imperial Voice. This is In Our City. I'm William Heath. And I'm Tosin Onleri. Today's guest is a distinguished academic and a best-selling author. He's a German citizen and he finally wrote the book he'd always wanted to write. It was published in German as Der Letzte Kaiser von Afrika, Triumph und Tragödie des Heili Selassie. Translated into English, that is King of Kings, The Triumph and Tragedy of Emperor Haile Selassie I of Ethiopia. It's a deeply personal story, and our guest is none other than Prince Aswawasan Asarati. Aswawasan, welcome to Imperial Voice. A very good morning to you, William. Now, tell us the whole story. How, how did you end up in, in, in Germany? That was probably quite a, quite a smart move, wasn't it? Well, uh, you know, believe it or not, I have, a, 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 let me say, a colleague of yours once introduced me as an Anglo-Germanophilic Ethiopian. So these are the two um, countries that have played an important role in my life. But believe it or not, I started out at the German school in Addis Ababa, where I was uh, the first uh, the first Ethiopian to receive the Abitur in 1968. And then from then on, I went to the University of uh, Tübingen, and then to Cambridge and landed back in Frankfurt. I wondered why my parents ever sent me to a German school. And I think I now, at latter age, realized they might have thought uh, this is a naughty boy and um, the German discipline would do him a lot of good. <laughs> well, the abitur is a very rigorous, rigorous. I think if, one ha- if I had an ill-disciplined child, I think the abitur is probably the thing I would make them do because you just can't, you can't miss a single journey there. So then you, you worked and studied in Germany and made a career in Germany, obviously um, of necessity because you were then in exile at risk of your life, I guess. Absolutely. Well, I was very lucky, William. I was the last member of the imperial uh, the Piro family, who was allowed to leave Ethiopia. Oh. I left, to be exact, on the 1st of May 1974. I was there on holidays in Ethiopia. My sister had just got married, and I was, I was, I was returning to my studies. And exactly 10 days later, 
the provisional military government, the DERG, and they were not a government at that time, but they were a coordinating institution, as they used to call themselves. Uh, they gave orders that no member of the imperial house was allowed to leave the country. So unfortunately, I was the only member of my immediate family who did not go into uh, kith and kin detention. My mother and my brothers and sisters were in jail, uh, my brothers and sisters for nine years, and, and my nine mother years. nine years, and my mother for 15 years. Yeah. And as you know, in November, that uh, the on bloody Saturday, November of 1974, my father was one of the first victims of the uh, slaughter. Mm. So it really seems a a prescient and 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 kind move on your parents' part to make that link with Germany, to, to teach you German, make sure you're comfortable, to send you off to Germany, really. Very much. I'm very grateful for that. It's it's extremely impressive how you fell on your feet in Germany, because one wonders, you know, a, a, an imperial family in exile, you think, will they be good at anything else, you know? But you actually wrote a best-selling book, didn't you, about manners in Germany, yes. in German. That's an astonishing achievement. <laughs> I mean, this was the... Uh... And nobody but the Germans themselves didn't believe it. But to be honest with you, William, I had one thing that saved my life when this book came out in 2003 was my editor. If my editor, who was a very famous German uh, writer himself, um, uh, Hans Magnus Enzensberger, who was a very famous revolutionary in the 60s, you know, if he hadn't been the, my editor, I think they would have killed me, to be honest with you. But it's, funnily enough, so many things came together. You see, in, in 2003, this was the time when the Germans started to reflect on the revolution of 1968. And they were starting to get away from it. And so this book came at the right time. And there were certain people who said, this is the man who is the greatest anti-revolutionary, you know, and they would have really torn me to pieces. If this man was not my editor, they said, if he's his editor, there must be something in it. You know? so what, what particularly strikes you about German manners? Because they're very not, they're not understood in Britain at all. In Britain, people think the Germans have no sense of humor. I and know, think the Germans have no manners. It's completely nonsense, isn't it? It is absolutely a nonsense. You know, the Germans, I would look, I'd like to talk about German values. Yes. This is what really fascinated me most. And, of course, most of them are European values. But there is also a strong core of German values, uh, which uh, have been, uh, who have played a, a fundamental part in the German's history. Uh, you mean sort of Bürgerlichkeit and Tüchtigkeit, citizenship, hardworking? And all yeah. this gemütlichkeit and yeah. all those things which Being are very, very, you know, yeah. and uh, and uh, one, one thing, of course, that fascinated me was the first article of the German constitution uh, saying, you know, the um, the uh, die Würde des Menschen ist unantastbar. Yeah. The, 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 the dignity of humanity is inviolable. I love and, that. And I love the protection of the Entfaltung der Persönlichkeit, the, the unfolding of the personality. It's like a it's like a chrysalis turning into a butterfly. And that's protected in law with
Tosin has rejoined us, thanks to the um, global interweb, which is working very well. Why don't we play your first selection of music? Can I just say, um, have you been listening to our program in previous weeks? Uh, because your selection is eerily similar to local yeah. member of parliament, Jacob Rees-Mogg, leader of the House of Commons. I don't believe it. It is. Really? You, he chose the magic flute and you have chosen the overture from the marriage of Figaro. So that was um, the overture from The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. Um, so let's get back to your story. We're talking about the reputation, conflicting accounts, and the enigma of his imperial majesty. Um, I know you start off by at the book um, by telling us a, a, a small story about uh, being ill and uh, the emperor 
sending something to you. Would you like to share that with us? Lovely. I think I was about seven years of age when I had complicated tonsillitis, you know, and uh, I had to get an operation. And can you imagine, in those days, you had these ghastly way of uh, uh, sending people off uh, by dropping, you know, things on your, I think it was called ether, and uh, terrible thing. In any case, I was gone. And when I woke up, the first image was that of the emperor of Ethiopia, who was lying over my, you know, hospital bed and holding my hands. And behind him was my grandfather. These are the two first people that I, you know, I saw after awakening from from this terrible thing. You know, there was he, and he said, "Are you well?" And uh, keep on, and uh, you'll have ice cream will be sent to you uh, very quickly. But I'll never forget it. Just what this, you need when you have a bad throat. I, for a bad throat, you had to you had to eat lots of <laughs> ice cream in those days. And uh, so from that day on, from the I got all sorts of different uh, uh, ice creams every day until I left hospital from the Imperial Palace. Yeah. Well, that was very, very paternal and maybe explain some of your relationship with him. His Imperial Majesty is an enigma, as Tozin said, and it's partly because of the deliberate erasing of all the history and memory of him uh, in the wake of the Communist Revolution. And in British culture, essentially what we've got is Evelyn War, the translation of Kabachinsky's book, which you deal with very briskly, I think, in, in, in yours. So there was absolutely a vacancy, wasn't there, for a, for a really authoritative, historical, scholarly, properly researched account of, of the full life of this remarkable man. You know, William, I think he was treated uh, unfairly after the revolution. And my problem when I started writing this book was... I really wanted that this should be an objective account of the life of a man uh, who undoubtedly left his marks in the the edifice of time. I mean, he's a historical figure. And as a human being, he he had his good points and he had his weaknesses. Uh, There's no doubt about it. But to fail to see Haile Selassie was the epitome of an era, not only in Ethiopia, but who played an important role in the first half of the beginning of the first half of the 20th century as a world figure is a terrible lie. Uh, And this is not giving him the right place in history, as many people have done uh, in their writings after 1974. So I was, I felt one thing must not happen. People must not say this is a book, you know, glorifying uh, his uh, great uncle. Uh, That I tried as much as a human being can. I I tried not to avoid. Uh, But still, I, I really felt there were certain things that were not said, which had to be said. And um, we must also uh, divide, I think, in my eyes, uh, Haile Selassie in various, uh, in various degrees or in, in various um, uh, time settings. The young Haile Selassie, who was undoubtedly 
uh, a revolutionary, uh, and undoubtedly a man who continued the work of our great emperor Manilik and introduced Ethiopia to the 20th century. There's no doubt about it. Rastafari was, can only be uh, a hero of every Ethiopian who believes in modern, modernizing that uh, old empire. He was the champion. There's no doubt about it. And uh, uh, the, 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 if you look into what he, the, 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 the absolute um, uh, uh, ideals he had in, as a young man, to modernize his history and the effort that he put into it mm. and the trouble he had with the very conservative uh, uh, nobility at that time uh, and, and was, was amazing. And I think he did a wonderful job there. And uh, I would say that uh, that is one part where nobody could criticize anything, the work of Rastafari uh, up to 1930, when then he became Haile Selassie. And even then, um, and I would say the first, the first five years of his reign from 1930 till 1935, when the Italian campaign started, was also full of grandeur and full of determination to modernize Ethiopia. Um, one of the things that we're assuming, and you're assuming, <laughs> is that everybody knows the story of the emperor. So yes. if you don't mind to just give us a quick overview before we begin to dissect. Good. Um, yes. The emperor uh, was born at the latter part of the 19th century as the son of one of the greatest formidable Ethiopian um, uh, uh, marshals uh, of Emperor Menelik, Rasta Makondon. Uh, one of our heroes of the Battle of Adwa in 1896 in the province of Hara. And uh, his father died uh, when he was still a very young man. And he was brought into the court of Emperor Menelik, where he grew up and uh, where Emperor Menelik at a very young age gave him uh, uh, responsibility uh, in um, parts of Ethiopia as a district governor. And then he suddenly was landed uh, as the governor general of one of the most important provinces of Ethiopia, which was Harar, at, uh, by, uh, by appointment of the successor of Emperor Menelik Lejiasu. And it is during that time that we had this problem with Emperor Lejiasu, uh, who um, was not accepted by the Ethiopian nobility uh, for various reasons. Uh, perhaps in some cases, I would say he was too modern for his time and uh, perhaps too, uh, uh, too, um, too much for the very, very conservative Ethiopian nobility and Ethiopian church at that time. Because, for example, Liji Yasu was the man who said, I am not only the uh, emperor of the Christian Ethiopians, I'm also the emperor of the Muslims. They are two of us, they are two, they too are my subject. And, and anyway, you, yourself are, you yourself are a descendant of the prophet, as I understand it. Absolutely, because I'm related also to to both, you know, to both people who are now playing the role. That's, 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 quite, that's quite a heritage. Do you, so do you, respect, <laughs> do you respect both those traditions yourself or are you, are you entirely uh, Orthodox Christian? 
Uh, well, I am a man who really believes that Ethiopia is the country of the Abrahamitic faiths. Okay. And I'm very proud of that. And this is what we could give the world, is to see how these uh, three Abrahamic faiths can live in peaceful coexistence with one another. I think Ethiopia is a wonderful example. In those days, we were not quite sure of it. We were too, too, too Christian and um, did not accept the Muslims. And that is the problem that Yasu had, you know. Oh, it's that, yeah. So any, in any case, uh, in 1916, we had a coup d'etat. Um, and uh, Emperor Meliji um, uh, Yasu was uh, uh, dethroned, and uh, the daughter of Emperor Menelik became Empress, and Ras Tafari became uh, regent because she was un unable to bear children. And that is when the the real uh, the real work of Ras Tafari started. Uh, he started the modernizing mission and um, uh, then uh, became, uh, at the death of the empress in 1929, a year later, he was uh, crowned Emperor Haile Selassie. So at that point, do you think we should perhaps listen to your second musical selection? And again, eerily, you mirror Tosin's uh, member of parliament, Jacob Rees-Mogg, leader of the House of Commons, because he chose Zadok the priest, and you have chosen the arrival of the Queen of Sheba. So we have a German composer living in London, celebrating your, I suppose, 227th generation ancestor some 3000 years ago. Would that be right? That's absolutely right. It's a fantastic selection. It's an amazing piece of music as well. I love it, absolutely.
funny. It's eerie, that, isn't it, about you and Mark? Uh, very smart. Yes. Uh, yeah. Mm. Well, yes. But there is a sort of some similarities in uh, um, sort of cultural backgrounds, despite yeah. being uh, uh, different countries. There are, uh, amongst certain people of certain classes, a certain similar language that is... Of course, there's a very big difference between the two of us, I think, which is unbelievable. And you cannot, there cannot be any kind of, it cannot be bridged. And that is the fact that I think he was in the other place, wasn't he? Oh, I think he was. <laughs> yes. That, 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 cannot, that, would, that would be Oxford. And I yeah. think William will agree with me. Oh, this is right. absolutely... oh, yes. I was a bit mystified for a moment. Yes, 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 yes. Brilliant. Yes. So back to the emperor. So you're yes. sort of moving up to... Um, him coming to power in uh, what, 1916? 19, 1916 as a regent, and then yeah. 1930 as emperor. Yes. But then came an extraordinarily challenging time, didn't it, where his country was invaded. He'd invested his hope in the League of Nations uh, Treaty of Mutual Support. That didn't work, and he found he had to left the, leave the country. Would it be timely to read a short extract from your book? Because I was very, very moved by the account of when the emperor had had to leave the country and board a British naval ship. The ship's captain later sent a report to the Foreign Office. I quote, my first impression on being presented to his majesty was how very tired he looked. It felt somehow that he was almost at his last gasp. And from his first few remarks, I knew he was a very frightened man. He had a hunted look in his eye. Unquote. The emperor asked the captain whether his personal safety could be guaranteed. I assured him at once that as, I, as soon as, as he stepped over my gangway, he would be as safe as the Bank of England. The captain replied. This brought a smile to the emperor's face, the first for a very long time. And so it was that Haile Selassie I, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, elect of God, king of kings and king of Ethiopia, went into exile. He had undertaken to endure this test that God had set him with his customary imperial dignity. At the end of the passage to Haifa, the captain of the enterprise was moved to the remark, I quote, I have seldom been so impressed with any man, black or white, and his consideration, courtesy, and above all, his dignity has left a very deep impression on every officer and man in my ship. End of quotation. I thought that was that was beautiful and beautifully read. Thank you very much. In fact, I, I should say, um, I think the whole book is really beautifully written and beautifully translated. I think you had an excellent translator. Into beautiful it. translator. Yes, yeah. Peter. Yes. Mm. I mean, you say uh, you hope it's objective. It comes across as very objective and, you know, scholarly and well, very well researched. It, it does feel sort of frank and thorough, but also it is deeply personal, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, your, your personal history is entwined in it and, and that comes forward at regular points. 
absolutely. And I thought that was something which was also hid up to now, was what is hidden up to now. Very few members of the Imperial House have written memoirs, unfortunately. Uh, I'm very glad to say that my late father had written memoirs, and I sincerely hope that uh, my next uh, great ambition is to edit them and bring them out, you know, which is uh, going to be very interesting also for uh, politicians to see how Ethiopia was um, being led, I think, in the 50s and 60s of the last century. So this would be the, the memoirs of Ras Asarate Kassa as chair of the Crown Council, of the Imperial Council. Absolutely. And, you know, my father was uh, educated at uh, Moncton Coombe School in uh, near Bath. So listen, obviously, Tozin and I are from Bath. The thing yes. which brings us together is, is, is the legacy of his Imperial Majesty to our community in Bath. Would you just read for us a short extract about his Majesty's time in Bath? Because I have to say, I was a little put down by it, but then my heart was warmed. Why did Haile Selassie come to Bath of all places? A short but fascinating paper on the emperor's years of exile in Britain, written in 1992 for the Anglo-Ethiopian Society, provides a plausible explanation for the emperor's choice. I quote, it is very likely that the city may have suited his mood. It was elegant, but not fashionable as Monte Carlo or Cannes. Shabby in places, but dignified in a provincial way, cheaper than in London, yet sufficiently near for consultations with supporters in the capital. He needed a home and to plan his future as an exile. After several weeks at the hotel, the family took possession of Fairfield House, a large Victorian villa with an extensive garden on the outskirts of Bath. This was to be their hope for the next few years. Along, alongside the royal couple and their children, the Ethiopian foreign minister, Blatin Gitaharui, a secretary and two Coptic monks also lived there. Ras Kassa, whose son, Princess Ratakasa, was at school in nearby Moncton Coombe, also stayed at Fairfield House for a spell. The emperor's sons, Prince Asfa Wasson and Prince Makonnen, were sent off to study respectively at Liverpool University and at Wellington College, boarding school in Berkshire, and only spent their holidays at the house in Bath. This was the case for Princess Sahai uh, too, who lived in London at Great Ormond Street Hospital, where she was training to be a nurse. The imperial household at Fairfield House also comprised a number of Ethiopian servants, including a butler and a cook. Compared with the court life that the emperor had led in Addis Ababa, these were relatively straightened circumstances. Our life in Bath was very hard, Haile Selassie wrote in his autobiography. We also encountered great financial difficulties. Some had spread the rumor but we had taken a great deal of money with us when leaving the country. But this was a complete lie. The fact that we had serious financial problems was plain for all to see. You're listening to Imperial Voice. This is In Our City. That was an extract from the book King of Kings, The Triumph and Tragedy of Emperor Haile Selassie I of Ethiopia, read by the author Asfawasan Asarati. 
One thing that I have noticed was is, um, being uh, a frequent visitor to Fairfield House was the lack of grandeur. And I always wondered about that and the lack of security as well. Don't, I mean, it's yeah. so easily um, accessible. So it kind of, um, your, your explanation basically has, it's, it's illuminating because now we understand why it seems like such a humble house for someone who was once an emperor. So did he, did he not get any financial aid from the British government? Not a penny, to be honest with you, Tozin. And this is one, another very unfair thing, which happened also in 1974. It was exactly the same in 1936. If you look at the British papers of those days, they were saying King Solomon's mines. This is what the emperor brought with him. Cases and cases full of gold and jewelry and God knows what. Now, I can assure you, we know that the only way he survived his exile was by selling his silver. Uh, there were so many instances where I was offered imperial silver by both famous English uh, auction houses and the European ones. And he lived literally by selling also the jewels of his wife. Mm. And then, and I talk about this in my book, there was an anonymous donation of 10,000 pounds. I'm afraid I, I, I have not been able to trace who the person was until this very day, but this enabled him to buy Fairfield House. And you know, this is what is heartbreaking and also heartwarming is in the winter, this terrible winter of 1936 and 37, do you realize there were citizens of Bath who used to go up to Fairfield House with buckets full of coal in order to give it to the emperor. This, this is what my father told me, what he remembers very, very, very much as a child, you know, it's childhood remembrances of days in exile. So these were really hard times. And of course, the government of both Baldwin and uh, Neville Chamberlain never even thought of that. This was the era of appeasement, appeasing the dictators. They didn't want Mussolini to join forces with uh, Adolf Hitler. And so said, so, uh, we, we would leave it at that. I was at a little pained to read your words, Bath of all places, given that, you know, we've also chosen to leave it. But I have to say, I think your use of the words shabby and provincial are kind of fair enough. I think they would get on as fair comment in a libel trial because it's very striking in the story of His Imperial Majesty how our national government was calculating and also quite racist, I think. And yet, when, once he'd come to Bath, he seems to have encountered warm-hearted people and I think also people who, who, who want to dream big. And I think actually there is nothing that allows us to dream big more than his Imperial Majesty's legacy. And we would argue that it should be formally considered as part of our world heritage status. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, talking about the way the emperor was received when he went into exile in England, one has to differentiate between the British government and the British people. I have to tell you, the hearts of the British public, the wide British public, was on the side of the emperor. 
and certainly of the entire anti-fascist movement in England, he was the hero. And look at uh, uh, that very famous anti-fascist uh, and uh, young uh, lady, Hilda Seligman, who was a very famous uh, sculptress as well, and who did this magnificent sculpture of the Ethiopian emperor, which unfortunately has now been destroyed by extremist or Romo uh, youngsters in England uh, in the last summer. But, you know, they failed to understand this statue was not made because he was an emperor of Ethiopia, by the way, which he wasn't at that time. Unfortunately, Great Britain had already recognized mm. King, um, the King Victor Emmanuel of Italy as emperor of Ethiopia. To our shame. So he wasn't. Yeah. Hilda Seligman made this statue and Wimbledon City Council accepted to bring it, into, you know, to make it public. Because, she said, he is the leader of the anti-fascist movement worldwide. Do you know what the name, what the emperor of Ethiopia was called in the Soviet Union? Tell me, tell me, I didn't know. The anti-fascist on the throne. This is how they saw him. Not as a feudal, not a man to get rid of. Never. Until his last days. Listen, I think um, from the sublime, let's go to the ridiculous and hear your third music choice, which is which is Noel Coward. I must say, uh, if you're going to choose Noel Coward, I thought you were going to say, don't let's be beastly to the Germans. But here we well, are. I, did, I didn't want to do that. And I didn't also want to ask the mad dogs and Englishmen. Yeah, I didn't there is... do that either. <laughs> I find this music absolutely heavenly and the, the, the room with a view. And I have to tell you, I'm a great, great admirer of uh, Noel Coward. And I thought it was also befitting because it was the time when the emperor was there. It was the 30s, wasn't it? That the music was also being created, right? Much more likely he would have listened to this than to heavy dub or something, isn't it? Cherishing through the perishing winter nights and days A funny little phrase that means Such a lot to me that you've got to be with me heart and soul For on you the whole thing leaves Come with me and leave behind the noisy crowd Sunlight shines for us above the clouds. Please don't turn away or my dream will stay hidden out of sight among a lot of my dreams. A room with a view and and no one to worry us, no one to hurry us through this dream we found. We'll gaze at the sky and try to guess what it's all about, then we will figure out why the world is round. Happy and contented as birds upon a tree, high above the mountains and sea. 
and sorrow will never come, or will it ever come true? How was your book received? I mean, to be honest with you, when you look at all the, uh, the, the people that have written uh, reviews, uh, I was absolutely stunned and most, most grateful. Many accepted uh, it to be a, um, an objective book. They said I was objective enough not to make, you know, not to glorify it, for which I was incredibly grateful. So I would say I'm absolutely satisfied by the reviews. I haven't heard any great criticism of that book. I don't, I don't, I don't know of any reviews. And, um, you know, uh, for me, it was important to give the European public or the world public another view of this man who had done so much for his country, but unfortunately, who also had made mistakes in the latter part of his reign. Simon Sebag Montefiore, he called it a superb, magnificent and totally gripping biography. I see The Guardian said, again, called it magnificent biography by the German Ethiopian historian Aswasan Azarati, diligently researched and fair minded. Haile Selassie is at last accorded a proper dignity. The book is manifestly a riposte to Richard Kapuscinski's The Emperor. And The Spectator, it's always pretty astute, even if they're very right wing. As for Western Nasserati's even-handed account of Haile Selassie's successful autocracy is that precious thing, an African history written by an insider. I, I think it's a great read. I, I think there could be more done on his Imperial Majesty's legacy. You have a chapter which describes his funeral and what he did for Ethiopia. But I think there's much more that could be said about what he did internationally as an international statesman. I think he leaves an incredible spiritual legacy and, and a cultural legacy, not just his appreciation of the visual arts, but a musical legacy accepted by UNESCO as a kind of intangible world heritage of which he's the object of veneration. So could we talk a little more about how you see his legacy? Undoubtedly, he, I see in him the man in whose reign was the last time that an Ethiopian could walk from Moyale in the south to Eritrea in the north without anything happening to him. Unfortunately, we haven't been in that position since then, which is a great tragedy. So the years of Haile Selassie's rule more or less will be seen by many as the last years of peace in that country. And the last time when Ethiopians looked at each other at themselves as brothers and sisters, where there was no racism. I use this word very diligently, knowing what it means. Yes, we are living in a racist country in Ethiopia today. For me, ethnic federalism is another word for apartheid. I'm not saying it myself. This comes from the horse's mouth. In 1948, the National Party loses the election in South Africa. The Boers come into power. Mr. Malan becomes prime minister. 
Two days later, he gives a press conference and he's asked, what is this new thing called apartheid? And his answer to that was, apartheid is nothing more than an ethnic federation. And I'm ashamed up to the core that this country that has done so much for the decolonization of Africa, for African unity, that this country is the only country in Africa where we have in our identity cards the words race written on it. We are divided as never before, and God only help us if not, if something does not happen, and this vile Ethiopian constitution is not ripped to, and thrown away. I wonder if the whole entity called Ethiopia will exist in the future. Wow, that was incredibly passionate, especially taking um, into consideration that so many of our guests refuse to be engaged on the sort of subject of modern day Ethiopia. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. I'd like to go a little bit backwards before we go forward again and just to talk about what happened to your family and what happened to the emperor at the time of the revolution. Well, you see, the revolution started um, in early 1974. And uh, at that time, we were hoping that it would only become not a revolution, but it would be another of these moments where Ethiopia's destiny would uh, be would lead to a, a brighter future. A new constitution was envisaged. We were supposed to have land reform. And the emperor had said yes to all that. The government of Legend Alcacho, McConnell, had brought in very young people who had and very talented technical technocrats into the government. And things were looking fairly well. When then, unfortunately, the whole thing fell into the hands of the military, who did not stop making more demands uh, to the emperor until uh, they started saying, you have, uh, uh, no, we need to question your uh, dignitaries. And one after the other, all the ministers and all the, uh, the people who had served the emperor for over 40 years, where one after the other were called and shut in prison. And on this terrible night of Saturday, the 23rd of November, 1974, mm -hmm. 60 of them, including my late father, were rounded together and were shot without any trial. And that started off uh, the great killings that culminated two years later, the great uh, so-called uh, Red Terror, where over half a million of Ethiopian lives were lost. After the death of my father, all the members of the entire imperial family, including my mother and my six brothers and sisters, were put under kith and kin detention. And uh, we lost a, a number within the time of the revolution. A number of our relations were also, were, were also killed. And uh, it took us until uh, 1991, until the last members of the imperial family were given their freedom. It's a terrible history, and we really feel for 
what you and your family must have lived through at that time. And it, and it makes for a, a gripping conclusion to your book that the, um, the closeness and the authenticity and the seriousness of it, suddenly that detachment of the historian just falls away completely, which does make it, I think, a unique book. I mean, one can read the history of Nicholas and Alexander or something, and you feel this sense of imperial tragedy and direction and so forth. But your book has that added dimension of that really visceral personal involvement it's it's so I do really commend it to to all our listeners could I ask you a final thing as for Watson and that is so we are yeah we are a provincial town and Fairfield House is a bit shabby I'm sorry about that it shouldn't be but it is we'd, we'd like to work on that what role do you think the legacy of a building and an intangible culture what role do you think Fairfield House can play in terms of these themes you've touched on of peace and race and connection and culture between people and faiths? I think the greatest role it could play is one of the biggest legacies of the last emperor of Ethiopia, and that is Pan-Africanism, an institution which is unfortunately dying out. When I see, when I look at my at my youth. I was 15 years of age when in 1963, the Organization of African Unity was established. You know, William, we had, a, we had a, a, a play in the German school. You went up to one of your fellow Ethiopian comrades and you said, where do you come from? He said, are you out of your mind? I am a great Ethiopian national. Bang, wrong answer. What did he have to say? I am an African. Can you imagine? And look at us today, where we have fallen so low that everything has been ethnicized and we can't even call ourselves Ethiopians. So the great legacy of the emperor was his fight against colonialism and his fight for African unity. And I can assure you that fateful night in 1963, if it wasn't the emperor of Ethiopia, the charter of the African Union would never have been signed. It was him who brought these two, you know, institutions who were faring against each other, uh, the Monrovia group and the, 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 the uh, Casablanca group together. I talk about it in my book, which was, so I would say Pan-Africanism. Would it be a we in Bath with a, with, a, with a provincial legacy and a house which is dedicated as a home for the aged, which does daycare for, for um, mainly ethnic minority groups. Do you think we have, I mean, is that the most valuable, most catalytic role that we could try to play? Well, through Pan-Africanism, of course, to show also the great friendship between Great Britain and Ethiopia, mm -hmm. uh, which... Uh, if I may say so, was the first time in the great history of the British Empire that you went into Africa to liberate the country as not <laughs> colonized. Is this true to our shame? Do you, do, you, do you think, I mean, what do you think about uh, what Asfa Watson said about, about Fairfield's orientation being towards Pan-Africanism? Well, uh, I think it's, it's wonderful and idealistic um, on the ground, obviously. Um, I don't, um, I, I found the African Union to be very disappointing body. 
mm. um, existing solely for the purpose of existing um, and right. hasn't had much of an influence. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I, th- I, I, I do think what the emperor um, stood for in terms of Pan-Africanism in terms of you know his global views of race uh, anti-racism etc absolutely wonderful amazing but I am concerned about how we still there's so much differentiation between um, how Africans um, are interacting uh, let alone sort of people um, black people from around the world. If you look at South Africa, you'll see the racism against other black people. Um, If you look at Ethiopians, even Ethiopians in England do not see themselves as black, but as some sort of separate other um, um, race. So how can we be unified? How can we move forward when there's so much disparity, when there's so much um, uh, that we are not, you know, so, but it's an ideal, and I think it's so it's a wonderful one. How 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 successful it is possible to be, I'm not sure. And what about you, sir? What do you think? I I have to say one thing. If there is any Ethiopian alive who doesn't consider himself to be black, I think he is a shame for the nation. Uh, there is no Ethiopian who I know. That has not uh, does not see this and has not does not see the vital role that Ethiopia has played uh, th- throughout uh, the 20th century. Don't forget, Ethiopia was the only country that was a founding member of the United Nations in 1945 because there were no other African countries that were free, and that was what the what the Ethiopian government was hammering during the 50s: the liberation of the of of, of Africa the decolonization of the African continent. And of course, if we did not consider ourselves black, God knows, what are we then? White? Well, I, I would say that, you know, the, there's a difference between what a government, quite often what a government thinks and what individuals. I mean, I am on several um, WhatsApp groups, and, sorry, not WhatsApp, Facebook groups, and with um, Ethiopians and stuff. And they, there is such a distinct, in their mind, difference between them and other black people. I'm very uh, sorry to hear this. This is very, very bad news for me, to be honest with you. I had no idea that there were even anybody who would say that in these days. Um, I wonder where they got it from. Um, uh, we, I am very proud that Ethiopia is a, a, a nation of so many different ethnic groups and you find as far as the color of their skin is concerned you'll find them from very bright until very very dark uh, everything is there and that is what makes me an Ethiopian is to find that I am a country with a culture with where all these people are being, you know, being represented. After all, it is our great, great grandmother, Lucy, uh, that started off the human race uh, entirely. So for me, there is no question of color. I mean, we are black, but we are also human beings. And uh, we see each other as being a country that is uh, uh, where humanity started. So forget it. 
there is no kind of uh, color question in my mind and in my philosophy. But you know, what I feel very, very strongly about is, is racism in, in, in form of tribalism is coming back in Africa and that is going to kill us. And that is going to be the end of, of African independence and of African, uh, of African sovereignty. Don't forget, that is how the colonial powers came to Africa. They said, look at your neighbor. He looks differently than you. He speaks a different language. So he's your enemy. Here, is your, here are some armaments. Fight him and you're, I'll give you more. That is how they got us, you see. And that will also be the end of Africa unless we really brace ourselves to our duties and then really say we have to make a change and pan-Africanism has to come back again. I just have to say that I, I do, I find everything you've said today really enlightening, um, very powerful. Uh, and I hope that you will come back again soon to talk more with us. Um, it's, been, it's been a really exciting journey. So thank you very much for coming. We've been talking with best-selling author, Prince Asfar Watson, Asarate, and hearing him read extracts from his book, King of Kings, The Triumph and Tragedy of Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia. Asaf Watson, it's been a joy and delight to speak to you this morning. Thank you so much for coming on the show. What a great pleasure it was to meet both of you. Please keep in touch. And if I come to Bath, and if you come to Germany, you have all my details. I'm William Heath. <laughs> Stay tuned to Imperial Voice. didn't bust you for not reading the book. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, Dad, didn't I take it well? You did, it? no. Honestly, I think every 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 school child that has not done their homework should be proud of your performance in that one. Uh, way, let me just fess up, because lies are so hard to maintain. You know we are still recording, by the way. <laughs>